and ask the Lord's aid as we continue to consider his word here this morning. Father, we thank you for the gathering of this assembly. We're grateful for the message of truth that has been sung and proclaimed. And pray now that as we come before the text of Scripture, before many texts that we consider today, though briefly, I pray that you would string them together into our understanding and permit us to grow in our understanding of what you have done. We pray for those who visit with us today that have been invited by a friend. We're thankful for their presence with us. I pray especially for those who do not have a saving relationship with Christ, who do not rejoice to the core of their being and what we have sung and the truth that we have exalted in today. I pray that you draw them to understand that message. And for every one of us, as we review our knowledge of the gospel of which we have sung, I pray that you would deepen us in the message, in the story of redemption in Christ. We ask for your aid here because by the Spirit of God we can understand your word and without that ministry we are blind to it. So I pray that you will use these words, that we would recognize them to be the bread of life, that they, we would recognize them to be your very words and counsel to us. And I pray that together we might grow in grace as we consider these words. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. TV dramas sometimes start with a pivotal event. Then the story goes back in time to events that lead up to that pivotal event. You perhaps watch this. It, it, the pivotal event will take place right away and then the screen will say 12 years earlier or three months earlier or six hours earlier or something. And the story goes back in time and picks up their coming to that pivotal event. And then as it reaches that pivotal event, you understand it a lot better. And usually, as the story unfolds, the, there's a climactic event some form of resolution at the end. In a sense, that's where we stand here together this morning. We have looked at the pivotal event. We have spoken of, read about, and sung about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. What I'd like us to do now is go back in time and work our way back up to where we are at this point then proceed from there to the story's resolution. I don't know how else to say this, but just to say buckle up, because here we go. This is a long story that we're going to take uh, address in a very short period of time, covering a lot of terrain. For those of you that visit with us, this is not typical of what we would do on a Sunday morning. Typically, we'll work through a passage of Scripture that's a lot shorter and more manageable. But today we want to take a kind of a jet tour looking at the history of death and its death. And I trust that as all of this story comes into our understanding, that it will be revealing, sanctifying, and by God's grace we will identify with it as his people. We look first of all at the birth of death, and all of the text today will be on the screen here, so you can just look to that and uh, perhaps write down passages to look at later if you'd like to do that. They'll all be here on the screen. And we look first of all at the birth of death. 
begins, of course, in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, that God created the heavens and the earth. And God saw that everything that he had made, behold, it was very good. There was nothing that God made that was not good, nothing that was corrupted. The crowning act of God's creative handiwork was the creation of Adam and Eve in his image. And Genesis 2 highlights this account. It goes into fuller detail from chapter 1. And we read here that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And and man became a living creature. So God forms the physical body of Adam, Adam, from Adama, from the dust of the earth. But God warns Adam that he will lose this life. He is a living being, but he will lose this life if he disobeys God. This instruction given to us here in Genesis 2, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The Hebrew reading, dying, you will die. You will absolutely die in that day. Sadly, Adam chose to die, in a sense. He chose not to live forever. He could live forever. But in his immorality, he chose not to be immortal, but rather to die, to break the will of God. Tragically, making that wrong choice in chapter 3, we get to the heart of it there, skipping the background, but when the woman, when Eve, saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, And they knew that they were naked. There was a self-consciousness that strikes them there as they break the law of God. And the cancer of death is seeded here in the human condition. Yet the immediate death that Adam and Eve suffer is not physical. That's what we would anticipate. In the day that you eat of it, on that day you will die, but they don't drop dead. The immediate death that Adam and Eve suffer is not physical. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What we're looking at here is spiritual death. Death is separation. In physical death, the body from the spirit, or the spirit leaving the body, that separation is what death is. Here we have spiritual death. The individual separated from God, alienated from God, hiding here from the one with whom they have enjoyed fellowship in the garden. As Ephesians chapter 2 asserts, this state of alienation is now natural to us. By nature, we hide from God. And those words may strike you this morning. Some among us, you may say, that's me. I'm really more comfortable hiding from God than relating to Him. It can differ between people, but it might be shame. Shame 
thinking about the past or fear of who God is and how he might relate to me or confusion or it might just be sheer disinterest. You're hiding from God because you just don't care. Or maybe you're angry with God. Maybe you're bitter against Him for something that's happened in your life. Whatever it is, wherever it leads, you're in the trees hiding. That's spiritual death. That's a separation between you and God that God does not intend. He created us to find our deepest joy and soul satisfaction in a relationship with Him. But we choose sin over intimacy with God. We choose our way, our approach, to break His law rather than to walk in warm fellowship with Him. That's spiritual death. Spiritual separation from God. And it's what Adam and Eve suffer here on the day of their sin. We choose greed and lust and indulgence and lying and theft and deception and hatred and a million other things that do not evidence the nature of God in His goodness. And choosing that, we choose to put a distance between us and God, to hide in the shadows away from Him, whether it's through fear or shame, disinterest or outright rejection. That is spiritual death. And it's what Adam and Eve suffer here. Well, back to them in the garden. Adam's sin would eventually result in physical death as well. In Genesis chapter 3, God curses Adam and his work in just penalty of his sin. He says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This death will come. Not immediately, as might have been anticipated, but it will come. Adam was created to subdue the earth by exercising dominion as God's steward. And what what do we see here? There will be frustration. By the sweat of your face, it will resist you. It will bring thorns and weeds and all types of difficulty has entered now into the story. Earth is cursed because man was made to subdue it. Now that man has fallen in sin, the earth itself will be resistant to him and eventually he would die. His spirit separating from his body in that last exhale, exhale of death. But there was a physical death in the garden that was immediate. It's subtle, but we find next in the text that the Lord made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. An animal dies for them, killed to provide clothing that was necessary. We don't understand all of the nuances of it, but in their self-orientation now in sin, there was a need for clothing. Before that, they were self-aware, but not self-absorbed, to a degree that we cannot even understand. And so an animal is killed for them to cover their sin to cover that debilitating self-awareness resulting from their sin. They deserved to die, but in one sense, the animal was killed to cover their shame, 
killed for them. In these early chapters, we can draw a few conclusions, a few observations. And the first, from a biblical perspective and worldview, it is clear that death is a tragic intrusion into the human story. We were not created to die. God did not make us with a shelf life. We know this deep in our bones. And that's why we resist death so vigorously at every turn. We were not made for this. And yet death cleans us out. It wipes the field bare behind us. It is a vile and bitter enemy. It is called in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 26, the last enemy. The final and ultimate enemy of humanity. Secondly, we learn here that death is the just penalty and tragic consequence of sin against God's law. In our culture of individualism, we struggle to perceive the wickedness of sin. We struggle to see that we were made by God for God to revel as recipients of His love. All of this, remember Genesis 1.31, was good. That's what God created. It was good. It was beautiful. It was to be enjoyed. The love between God and creature was something that was to buoy us for eternity. But we've turned from that. And our sin is a violation of all that God intends and of His very being. As the giver of life, God is our soul's highest joy and satisfaction. And we dismiss that. And when we dismiss it, we cast off life. We do not cast off the pleasures of sin for a season. But we cast off life, ultimately. And the ultimate pleasures of joy in the presence of the Lord. So sadly, death now reigns over nature and mankind, corrupting everything and everyone, as in Adam all die, we read. Let's think then secondly of the reign of death. This reign continues now from Adam and Eve's story to the story of humanity. As the story continues in chapter 4, the first thing that we see is that Cain... The oldest son of Adam and Eve murders his brother Abel. And death continues to stalk the human race. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 5 records Adam's death followed by the death of one generation after another. We see this in Genesis 5 as one person dies, fathering another that dies, fathering another that dies, fathering another that dies. One after another, no exceptions save here and there those who enter directly into glory. But they are rare and few. In Genesis chapter 6 and 7, death nearly destroys all mankind as God employs a universal flood to cleanse the entrenched moral corruption of the world at that time. All but eight souls, Noah and his family, survive. Death almost wins. In Genesis chapter 9, the family exit the ark to find a very changed world, but God in His mercy says this will not happen again. This type of punishment and destruction, I will preserve you. I will pour out my grace upon you. I call you again as I did Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it. 
And there is a type of new Genesis, new creation here in Genesis chapter 9. Yet despite God's grace, what do we find? Where does human history go? It is marred by war and murder and violence and disease and tragic accidents and old age and natural disaster. We prayed about that this morning, didn't we? And it just continues to our day. Death reaps the field bare in relentless pursuit of every generation, and yet the Bible pulsates with hope. There is a hope and a joy that is everywhere evident in the pages of Scripture. The wages of sin is death. Never does that message go away, and yet God works methodically along the long arch of redemptive history to rescue His people from sin and from death. It is a long arch. He definitely has more time than we do. And He's really slow from our perspective. But we're just a blip on the line. He's running the whole story. And so this plan involves two key installments early in Scripture unfolding in the book of Genesis and the books that follow. But in Genesis chapter 12, a very major installment is the election of Abraham and a covenant with Abraham that it is through his offspring that the Messiah will come and through this Messiah that all will be rescued who trust in him. The Abrahamic covenant, we call it. The second piece is an elaborate system of ritual animal sacrifice that substitutes for the judgment that sinners deserve. So much like that animal was killed in the garden to cover Adam and Eve's sin, so there would now be a ritual system of animal sacrifice that would cover people's sin. These, sacrifice, these sacrificial offerings covering sin, we see a glimpse of this in the garden. But now as we move into the book of Leviticus, God arranges this system that drills into the hearts of God's people that the wages of sin is death and that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no atonement for sin. We can pause only to take a quick peek at that system, the Mosaic Covenant coupled now to the Abrahamic covenant. But the Mosaic covenant, we find this instruction in Leviticus 1. As the book opens, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. This offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting and that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Placing a hand on the head of the animal symbolizes a transfer of sin as a substitute. Your dog comes running to you and you pat the dog's head. You say by that patting, you're mine, I'm with you, I like you, something like that. But it, it, there's a warmth that's there, a transfer in a sense of love for the animal. But when an animal is laid on an altar of sacrifice and put your hand on the head, you're not patting it. You're saying, my sin on this sacrifice. 
my deserved death placed on this animal. If that causes us some horror, it really should. This animal is taking my place and dying for my sin. If this offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So God graciously provides that a lamb could die in the place of a sinner. There's stipulations. Physically flawless. A year old lamb on the central altar of Jerusalem offered every morning and every evening without exception. It's hard for us to even begin to imagine this, but just say that every single day on the central altar in Jerusalem an animal is offered morning and evening. And to that, every Sabbath, every Saturday from our understanding, every Sabbath, two additional yearlings were offered in the morning. Each new moon, there were a number of other sacrifices that were offered. And more were added to these on the three major festivals of Passover, Pentecost, and Booths. This does not calculate in all of the individual sacrifices that were offered by God's people on that same altar. It's estimated that prior to the temple's destruction in 70 AD, that the Jews would offer up to 30,000 lambs on the altar at Jerusalem at Passover. It was an assault on the senses. The blood... The smell, the number of sacrificial animals, year after year after year. Every day of every year, animals slaughtered, offered in sacrifice to God for the nation, for the priest, for the people, for sinners. Never was the fire on the central altar in Jerusalem to stop burning, ever. It was to continue on. Now, obviously, as we stand back from our perspective and look at this system, it's clear that it was temporary. It's clear that it was inadequate, ultimately. First of all, the perpetual sacrifice of animals revealed the inadequacy of the system. The the job was just never complete. It wasn't even complete within a day. It had to be morning and evening. Secondly, animals cannot ultimately atone for the sin of a human being. Yet God established this system. Remember I said He's slow. It's a long art. He he, he takes His time to establish through many, many generations. Pointing forward to one sacrificial substitutionary lamb that would die in the place of sinners. When all was ready and in place, God sent the substance to which the shadow of the Mosaic law pointed all along. At just the right time, as we have been celebrating today, God sent His eternal Son, Jesus Christ, to take on human flesh, to be born of a virgin, to strike the decisive blow against death, 
to which the sacrificial system pointed. It was a system of death. But it pointed to the one who would defeat death forever. And so we consider not from the birth of death to the reign of death and to the death of death in the coming of Christ. First of all, Jesus' earthly ministry. From the outset of His ministry, Jesus of Nazareth put death on notice. He began to loosen death's stranglehold in two significant ways. We could add others, but these are interesting to note. The first is that He raised some dead people from the grave. He raised them to life who had died. That's putting death on notice. There's a prophet here. Secondly, he announced that he would rise from the dead himself on the third day. So as an example of that first, Jesus said to her, we're we're moving here now to uh, uh, the friends of Jesus, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, siblings, and Lazarus dies. Jesus comes to the funeral gathering, and he said to her, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Standing among grieving mourners, this is pretty dangerous speech. This is provocative. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What does that mean, Jesus? Notice that he says, even though he die, that's physical death, he will never die, speaking of spiritual eternal death. But does Jesus speak of some sort of mystical life force then? Something like that. Something fairly safe. Even though he die physically, he'll never die ultimately. His memory will live on. In some mystical way, life continues. The text continues. That's not the case. For then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. A stone lay against it. That was the doorway, the stone over the opening. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things in prayer, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The reaction of Jesus' enemies is so telling. In verse 45, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees, a religious sect in Jerusalem nearby, and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? This is the chief council of Israel, 
the power brokers in the capital city of Jerusalem. What are we to do? Notice what they say. For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What is their concern? Their concern is with their position of power in society. That's their concern. You'll notice here they never deny that Jesus raised the man from the dead. There wasn't anything they could do about that. The man had been dead for four days at a public funeral and he was now walking around. They never tried to say that he wasn't alive. That's example one. He raised people from the dead. And we find other examples of this in the life of Jesus. In the second example, where he speaks of his own resurrection, taking the twelve, he said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. It is no accident then, as time passes and that final week comes, it's no accident that Jesus died in Jerusalem as Passover lambs were being slaughtered at the temple. He died as the ultimate Lamb of God, to whom the sacrificial system had always pointed. Animals could never substitute for a sinner, not ultimately, but a man could. And Jesus did. He was the perfect sacrifice to die in the sinner's place, to pay the penalty of sin. At the beginning of his earthly ministry, John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He dies as that ultimate Lamb to substitute for the sinner. As 1 Peter as we find in 1 Peter, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. He bore our sins in His body on the tree. In a sense, our hand goes on the head of the dying Savior. My sin on Him, and He dies bearing my sin. Jesus became then the last and final sacrifice for sin. If this is a question in your mind, Hebrews chapters 9 and 10, we cannot take the time to look at them in fullness here today. But they make clear that He bore the full fury of God's just judgment against us in fulfillment of the sacrificial system. The last sacrifice. The final sacrifice. The one who dies in the place of sinners who deserve death. And what was the final proof that Jesus' death was, as it says here, bearing our sins in His body? What is it that says that God receives His sacrifice? It is His resurrection, of which we've read already this morning. But let's remember again, on the first day of the week, at early dawn, He went to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. 
Notice this phrase, this next sentence then. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. He prepared you for this. This isn't something we're making up on the spot. This is something that he had said during his ministry to you time and time again. Here it is, the empty tomb. He told you that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. The death of Jesus had so overwhelmed them to not even think about that. They had lost this one. You've never stood in the presence of a sinless individual. We can imagine what that loss would be like. They were overwhelmed by it. But now they remember. He said he would rise again. And it is here then that we see that his death struck the death blow against death. As he rises from the dead. And as the theology of the New Testament develops this idea, we see that it is through Christ's death that we are given victory over death and life. In His resurrection, we come to ours as we trust in Christ. But in fact, Paul writes to the Corinthians, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. By man comes death, that's Adam. Now the new Adam, Jesus Christ, rises from the dead. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The firstfruits, those first gleanings of the harvest. Jesus is the first one to enter into death and come out on the other side. The key here is that phrase, those who belong to Him. They are taken up in that victory over death in union with Christ so that when He comes, indicating that the death of death will be delayed until the end of the story. The climax is not yet. The defeat has happened, but there's more to come. 1 Corinthians 15 continues, then comes the end. So we're in the time before the end. But then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He is reigning in heaven today until that time and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is, is ex accepted who put all things in subjection under him. He's an exception to that. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So the risen Christ reigns today from heaven's throne and is bringing his enemies under submission. It's a slow process, but the plan will prevail. For now the spirits of those who die in Christ go immediately to be with the Lord while their bodies return to the dust. I believe there is a temporary body in that interim period, but our bodies aren't junk. They're just dead. And they go back to dust, and there will be a future for them. 
A day coming when Jesus will return to earth and resurrect the bodies of the dead, uniting us as we know we should be, body and spirit, for all eternity. The bodies of believers being revived and glorified, rejoining uh, Christ then in that way, He will finalize the conquest of death. Verse 26. And so will come the reign, return of Christ. Reigning now, returning in the future. And of that return we read in Revelation 20, Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who was seated on it, from His presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. That means everybody. Everybody is brought to life again. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The second death is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire for all who do not trust Christ as Savior. And as verse 14 says, is interesting and to our theme today, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The realm of death is destroyed. Death is dead. Death is history. This second death, this eternal separation from God in torment, does not touch those whose names are written in the book of life. There are those who will experience an eternal death, an eternal separation from God. And there are those whose names are written in the book of life. So the death that we see now, the death that we experience in this world, will become the only experience of those who are separated from Christ. But there are those whose names are in the book of life. Death will never touch us again. This book records the names of those who cling to Christ in salvation and long to live eternally in His presence. And this then is the ultimate climax when death is gone and life eternal is ours in Christ. How can we not ask the question of ourselves again then this morning? Is my name in that book? Is my name in the book of life? It will be life for eternity or death for eternity and separation from, from God. You know, we can have confidence that our name is written there. We cannot have pride in it, an arrogance to it. We must ask ourselves the question again and again in humility, is my name in that book of life? But having said that in our humility, we can have confidence. We can know that we have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Where does that confidence get shaken? It's when we look at ourselves when we look at our sin, we look at the fact that we don't deserve His forgiveness and His grace. 
But where that confidence gains so much strength is when we look at the fact that this is God's plan. This is Christ's work. And I am invited in by grace alone. Can you defeat death on your own? Do you imagine that you stand before God someday and say, death is dead. I have eternal life because I was a pretty good person. How foolish. How silly that is going to sound in that moment. That something that I have done, that someone who I am, that where I was born or what I did in this world is going to be that which overcomes death and gives me eternal life. It's foolishness. But God can pull this off. And over these millennia of time, as He works to prepare for this final consummation, He has done it. And He has said that I have done it in the resurrection of Christ. None of this is something we can pull off by being good people. But all of this is a message we can enter by faith in what Christ has done. Look off of yourself. Look off of those things that pull you down into death and look to Christ who gives life. The conquest of death is cosmic in scope and power, but Jesus can handle it. You cannot, I cannot, He can, so the key is to trust Him. To put your whole trust and confidence in the fact that God took on flesh in Christ, living a sinless life, so dying not for His sin, but as a substitute for sinners, bearing the weight and the judgment of God against our sin, and then rising from the dead in victory over death and sin. Trust Him. Trust what He has done. You will not be able to see this on your own, but by the grace of God, as He opens your eyes to see this truth, as you respond in faith to His call to do so, salvation is in Christ and in Christ alone. He can save you from your sin. He can give to you eternal life. As He said in the Gospel of John, this is why I came, to give them eternal life. Is your name written in the book of life? And do you know that because you are trusting in what Christ did to save you from sin? I trust that's the case. We're here as a church. If, if you say, I don't have a clue, I don't know, I'm not sure what to think. We've got nothing to sell you. It won't cost anything. But we, as we say from time to time, we're just beggars that's showing other beggars where to find bread. So let us help. Let us talk. Let us think more about these texts. We'd love to show you what we have seen by God's grace ourselves. Nobody here deserves that eternal life. But Christ made it available for sinners. If you see yourself as a sinner, you see yourself in need, and you say, I want to have the confidence that my name is in that book of life. I don't want to hide anymore from God. I want to walk with Him in warm fellowship. 
That offer is there. His arms are extended. The welcome is here. Don't rest until you know you have life. Let's pray. We are grateful, our Father, for the message of salvation that you have provided. We pause here to talk not to one another about it, but to talk to you and to humbly come before your eternal throne and to bow and to say, Lord, give us confidence that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We praise you for the Lamb who died in our place. We praise you for our Savior, the eternal Son of God who took on flesh and paid for our cost, the cost of our sin. Lord, we trust in you for your saving grace. We do not trust in ourselves. It's not what we have done. It's not who we are. It's what you've done. And we pause here to lift up your name, to give you praise, and thank you that this place has been filled today from start to finish with songs of praise and thanksgiving. We do not sing to ourselves and pat ourselves on the back for how good we've been, but we rejoice that though we deserve death, though we have hidden from you, you have come to rescue us, and that eventually we know that death will die. The, the mortal blow has been struck. We long for that future day when death is history. And we long to know now that we walk in that resurrection life. For any who are separated from Christ that do not know you as Savior, we plead, Father, that the seriousness of what you have revealed would strike them. That you will do a work in their heart and draw them to the free gift of salvation in Jesus. We lay this request before your feet, thanking you that you are a sovereign God who loves your people with an infinite love. May we rejoice in that and find our satisfaction in it as your people. And may the remainder of this day be lived for the glory of your great and saving name. Through Christ we pray. Amen.